The Fake Show podcast is brought to you by Hutchison and Stefan, The Food Connection, LV.com, Mr. Antenna, and our newest sponsor, Bruce City Brand Apparel. I've always thought about how much more we can learn if we just dare to go farther. People around the world are rallying behind one simple endearing notion, bring him home. We have seen hundreds of messages of support of this brave astronaut. Modney's ordeal is far from over. NASA is doing everything they can to figure out how to save him. It's The Fake Show with Jim Tofty. One of the climactic scenes from the hit film, The Martian, based on the critically acclaimed book by Andy Weir. You know, real-life NASA officials were surprised at the incredible accuracy of the book. The way that book was eventually put together is an amazing story as well. We'll talk about that and Andy Weir's latest book. And you should know how I have tried to set up this interview with Andy a couple times, but his people seem to forget to put it on his schedule. The third time is a charm, I hope. I believe I've got Andy Weir on the line right now. Hello. Hi, is this Andy? Yes. Hi, Andy. It's Jim Tofty in Las Vegas. How are you doing? (laughs) Hey, man. Again, I just have to apologize for just screwing that up twice in a row. (laughs) I feel like a complete idiot. I'm such a fan of yours, I probably would have uh, tried to set it up a couple hundred times. (laughs) Well... I swear, it's it's just they originally uh, they scheduled you uh, an interview with you and then never told me. So that's how we messed up the first time. And then the second time they rescheduled it, but um, I was still operating off of the old schedule. I thought for a second about not calling you, and just, but that would have probably been a kind of a jerk move. That would have been very fair. And 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 then we could reschedule, and you could not call me again, and that would still be fair. <laughs> and then we'll just see what happens on call number five, right? Well, yeah, because then we'd be even. So congratulations on your latest book. I have to say that that uh, The Martian, to me, really was breathtaking. I couldn't get it out of my head because as a kid, I was such a fan of the Apollo program, and it just kind of reinvigorated my whole feeling for that. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I did shamelessly evoke Apollo-era kind of NASA feelings. I, I did that on purpose. You're right. <laughs> what was the genesis for the book? Because not only was it critically acclaimed because of the story, which was great, but guys like Neil deGrasse Tyson, who said that you got the crucial science part of it right. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a science dork and a space, man, space flight, and, and on whatever, space flight as opposed to astronomy is my main, uh, is one of my big passions. And so since I was writing this book, I wanted to make it as accurate as possible. And at the time I wrote it, uh, I thought I was writing for a tiny niche audience of hardcore science dorks like myself. But I never imagined it would have large mainstream appeal. Since then, you've kind of become friends with Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? Yeah, somewhat. I mean, he's a busy guy. It's not like we hang out and have beer. But, uh, right. but yeah, I mean... Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when 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 we're in the same city, we try to we try to hang out at least a little bit. So the math and science stuff—it's it, sort of in your family. I mean, your dad was or is a particle physicist, is that right? Uh, yeah, technically he's a, a an accelerator physicist, but it's a fine distinction. Um, and uh, he he is still alive and and healthy and whatnot, but he is now retired. So he was a particle physicist. He he is. Fine. <laughs> Good to hear. And your mom, an electrical engineer? Uh, uh, same, same deal there. She was an electrical engineer. She is now retired and healthy. Did they want you to kind of go into the, fa- the family business, as it were? Not really. No, not at all. They just wanted me to do whatever would make me happy. 
um, they were both very supportive of my writing uh, aspirations. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer. And all through my teen years, I've always wanted to be a writer. I chose to go into software engineering when I went to college because I wanted to eat regular meals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, also, uh, just a clarification, mom, mom was an electrical engineer, but for her, it was never really a passion. That was her job, you know? She yeah. did it for a living. She did it for the paycheck. She never had any home electrical engineering projects. She never, she just, you know, that was a career she chose to, to make money to support me. <laughs> yeah. So she understood you wanting and having a passion for something else, which in this case was writing. Yeah. But again, there was really no pressure for my parents to go into or avoid any field. They just wanted me to do, you know, whatever I wanted with my life. The incredible thing to me, and I know you've been told this before from people who've read the book and have seen the movie The Martian, is that you were never really in touch with any NASA people or those types when you were doing research for The Martian. That's true. I, um, I didn't know any of them, you know. I'd never worked for any, I'd never worked for or had any connections with anyone in aerospace. So I just did the research myself. But space and space technology is a very easy thing to research. One of the easiest things there is to research because of a combination of factors. First off, the people who work on it are very proud to be working on it, right? They're very proud of that. They're like, hey, you know what? I helped design part of the servo, the retro thruster of the lunar excursion module. I mean, that's the thing that you brag about for the rest of your life, right? Yeah. So first off, they're very proud. Second off, they're technically gifted people, so they tend to be pretty savvy and they know how to post stuff online right and third off they want people to see it right they they, they are happy to post this information and then finally there's very little in the way of military or industrial secrets in the space world right now and so there's nothing that gets like kept a secret it's like oh yeah here is the exact thrust profile of a saturn f1 right you know <laughs> you got it it's at your fingertips the aerospace people have to kind of poke and prod people, don't they, to, to remind them and, and keep them interested. Sometimes where it ranks among national priorities goes up and down, that's all. But, I mean, people are always interested in the idea of space travel. So you were writing stuff, and The Martian ended up being something where you were kind of posting it online and serializing it. Yeah, I posted it all online, chapter at a time, to my own website, and... Uh, the reader feedback helped to encourage me to keep going and uh, stuff like that. So it was really cool. Did reader feedback also help you in terms of accuracy? Yes, very much so. In fact, that's the main thing um, that they did. Sometimes the narrative on The Martian gets a little muddled. People think that I crowdsourced the book. Um, I, did, <laughs> <laughs> I wrote the book. That was all me. Uh, but I did crowdsource <laughs> the fact-checking. Um, and so just, uh, you know, the, my readers are a bunch of sci-fi dorks like myself bunch of science-minded people who love to do the math, and so um, they did the math. And when I was wrong, they'd tell me, which was fantastic. It helped make the Martian very accurate. As you're posting these these chapters, when does it get to the point where someone says, you know, this is, could really be a, a book? I bungled into it. I basically, I, post, I got to, um, I finished it, and then people wanted the e-reader versions because it's easier than reading it on my website. And so I posted it to Amazon uh, Kindle Direct Publishing, and um, they require you to charge uh, for it. They don't let you give stuff away. And it sold really well, and that got the attention of Random House and Agents and Fox and stuff like that. So at no point did anyone say, hey, you should publish this. I was just like, oh, 
this is a way that it could be more convenient for people to read it if they want. <laughs> and didn't you at that point think, okay, I'll charge, you know, a couple cents or something like that? Well, I charged the minimum that Amazon allowed, 99 cents. Okay. <laughs> that was the day that I wanted to just give it away. I just wanted to use Amazon as a delivery mechanism. But their, their profit model is that they actually lose money on every Kindle they sell. They make their money off of the ebook, so they don't want anyone just giving away ebooks. So this really kind of took on organically took on a life of its own, didn't it? Yeah, it really did. It's like lightning in a bottle. I kind of wish I knew what I did right. After writing the Martian, it was like, okay, write another book. When did it come to the point where movie people got in touch with you and and you, there were they were talking rights? Uh, yeah, they. Uh, it was the film option on the Martian was um, being negotiated at the same time as the uh, book rights. So actually, like, those two deals came together within uh, four days apart. How exciting was that for you as a guy who didn't even want to charge for the Kindle book? Yeah. Well, it wasn't terribly exciting, the film option. Uh, Everybody told me, don't get too excited about it. Studios come in and swoop in and buy the film option on pretty much everything. Um, There's still a less than 1% chance this will ever be made into a movie. Interesting. At the time, I wasn't taking it seriously, you know. At the time, I didn't realize that it was actually going to end up happening. And then, of course, it did. And then the weird stuff about a movie is there's no point at which you pop the champagne. You know, there's no <laughs> point at which you like, at which you say, like, this is officially green-lighted. It's like, okay, well, we've got the screenplay writer now. Okay, well, we've got, we've got some people signed on. You know, okay, we've got, you know, we've, we've made some art uh, for it. And, okay, you know. And we're going to move on to the next step, and we're check, We're looking into scheduling and studio space, and then eventually they're like, okay, we're making sets now. That's a pretty good time, so they could still back out at any moment until they've shot that first scene. When they actually shoot the first scene, then all these contracts activate. All the actors, you're now like, you know, I don't, I don't remember what Matt Damon got paid for it, but it was a lot of money. And as yeah. soon as they shot that first scene, they were going to have to pay him that. You know? Wow. <laughs> as soon as they... And as soon as they did that, they had to pay me, they had to, they had to activate the option and pay me my money and all sorts of stuff. So once they shoot the first scene, then they're committed. They've, they've now got, it activates all these contracts that um, end up costing them millions and millions of dollars. So at that point, it, if, even if they did want to back out, they can't. They have to like make the movie to offset those costs. And impressive, wasn't it, in terms of the people, Ridley Scott and Donald, oh Donald Glover? Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I was thrilled about Donald Glover too. <laughs> right. Right. I was really excited. Did they film in Budapest? Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Because I saw an interview that you did. I think it was on CBS Morning News where you talked about having a fear of flying. So, did you fly over there and visit the set at any point? I did not. I did right. not. They invited me. They yeah. invited me. I, I could have gone over there, but I didn't go there. I also did. They, they shot all the studio work in Budapest. And at location and the kind of location stuff and big buildings and whatnot around Budapest. And then they shot uh, the on location stuff, the desert stuff was in a desert called Wadi Rum, Jordan. And I didn't go there either. But I did get to hobnob with the uh, stars and everybody. I got to I got to meet all the cool famous people at the premiere. Right. Stuff like that. So space travel, it's interesting. It's something that you would probably never do then. That is correct. I'm not I'm not one of them. You might want to meet Elon Musk, but you don't necessarily want to go on a trip with him anywhere. That's correct. Like, <laughs> I, I have met Elon Musk, 
and I would happily wish him good luck on his trip to Mars. <laughs> well, your latest book is getting a lot of buzz. It's called Artemis, which is, well, you tell me. I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a thriller in a lunar colony. Well, I hope it thrills. It takes place in a city on the moon, humanity's first non-Earth city. So it's a, kind of a frontier city out there. Uh, its main economy is tourism. Uh, it takes place in a future where the price to low Earth orbit has been driven down far enough that middle class people can afford space tourism. And so it's expensive to go to Artemis, but um, it, it, it's the sort of thing that a middle class person can afford as like a once in a lifetime vacation. There's about 2,000 people who live there. Uh, the city is very close to the Apollo 11 landing site, which is obviously a big tourist attraction. And um, the main character is a woman named Jasmine Bashara. Everyone calls her Jazz for short. She was born in Saudi Arabia, and um, she and her father moved to Artemis when she was just six years old. So she grew up there. She considers it her home. And she's a small-time criminal. She smuggles contraband stuff into town. Artemis doesn't have a lot of rules, but one thing it's very strict on is fire safety. And so she generally, you're not allowed to have anything that burns at all in Artemis. Everything's fire retardant. Right. Fire would be a disaster in a pressure vessel. So she smuggles things in like tobacco, you know, stuff like that. So she's a low-grade smuggler and stuff. Anyway, she gets an opportunity to do a big score and make a lot of money. And things, of course, don't go as expected. She finds out that she made a lot of really powerful, very murdery people angry. And then uh, <laughs> she uh, has to has to kind of extricate herself from that. I like the description, murdery people, yeah. The murdery folks. You talked about it earlier that you didn't have that feedback to rely on, so you wrote this in a more traditional way. Yeah, the good old-fashioned book contract from the start, and um, I, I didn't have the people to double-check my math, so this time I was really, really careful with it. Like, I put more effort into making sure that I got things right, you know what I mean? And is this something that you see in the future? Because you really do have a way of nailing this type of thing down, that we would eventually do something like this. Well, that is, I mean, it wouldn't be exactly like Artemis. Some of the details would be different. But I do believe that the first civilian city on the moon, like not, not a base, not like a research base that's funded by government, but the first self-contained economy on the moon will probably be tourism-based. And since it's tourism-based, it'll probably be near the Apollo 11 site. And then, and, and so on. And I, I worked out the cheapest, you know, what I believe to be the cheapest and most efficient way to build a state city on the, on the moon and the design that I, I thought was best. Yeah, I think I read, too, that just the little touches you include were very cool, like how coffee and scotch would taste awful on the moon. Yeah, well, coffee, especially because Artemis's atmospheric pressure is just 20% of Earth. And it's pure oxygen, which means it's the same amount of oxygen molecules in the air, but it's just the oxygen molecules, which is actually all you need. And so while that's perfectly great for human bodies, it gives you everything you need, um, it means the boiling point of water is about 61 degrees Celsius, which is about 140 degrees Fahrenheit, because when you reduce the pressure, the boiling point goes down. And so that means you can't properly steep coffee. And, uh, and when you drink it, it's kind of not that hot. Wow. And I know that Artemis, possibly like uh, the Martian, has sort of an optimistic view of the future. I think so. Yeah, I, I, I have an optimistic view of the future, so that tends to come through in my writing. Well, uh, we might have to move to the moon soon, so that's probably optimistic that we start looking at that stuff, right? <laughs> well, uh, when people talk about that stuff, I always say, like, no, 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 no. There is no planet B. Whatever problems we have on Earth, it's easier to fix Earth than it is to 
move our population somewhere else. There probably aren't enough shuttles in the world, right? Right. I mean, <laughs> we, this, this is the planet we live on. <laughs> but, by the way, did you say what the name Artemis means? Uh, Artemis is the Greek goddess of, um, well, she's uh, a goddess of a bunch of things. One of them is she is the goddess of the moon. And then also she is Apollo's twin sister in Greek mythology. So I thought it was an appropriate name. Does it also kind of relate to the character of Jazz? Uh, no, not intentionally. I, um, I, 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 I see you're trying to make it look like I, I'm a writer with depth, but <laughs> um, I designed the whole city, including the name Artemis, before I came up with any characters or plots to take place in it. I know that your central character is uh, actually Rosario Dawson narrates the audio book. Is that right? She does a fantastic it, job. Is she, would she be your choice to play jazz in the film? I don't know. Um, I mean, she would certainly be cool. See, for, for me, I, I just see a blob of character. I, I don't really get a physical view of what it is. But Rosario would be good because she's at least she's the correct, you know, uh, complexion. Right. I would like, and that that is one thing that that I feel strongly about. And also, I think if they do make the film, they'll make sure to get that right because I've talked to the directors, and that's very important to them too. Do we have directors? I had heard rumors that it was Chris Miller and Phil Lord from the Lego Movie. Yes, we we have them. Nice. Yeah. So, will there be Legos on the moon? <laughs> I I imagine there could be Legos on the moon. They're not very expensive to ship. Uh, They'd be good choice for kids on the moon. What would you like to see our country do next as far as space travel is concerned? Well, um, I would like us to basically do everything we can to spur on and encourage the commercial space flight industry. So uh, competition among boosters, booster companies like, you know, there's, there's the well-known ones like um, SpaceX and Blue Origin. And right. then there's the quieter ones like Orbital ATK and Boeing that are working on their stuff. I would like NASA to get out of the business of boosters or lift vehicles at all. I'd like them to concentrate on spacecraft and exploration and astronauts and outsource the actual job of getting things to low Earth orbit to private entities. That way those private entities would then compete with each other for lower prices, uh, uh, drive the price down, and, and eventually, at some point, if we reach that magical point where um, middle-class people can afford space tourism, then there'll be a huge space industry boom, like there was an airline boom in the in the 40s and 50s. And so I guess where I'd like our country to go is I'd like our country to go away from making boosters directly. I would like a, I would like all of that outsourced. So like, for instance, if you owned Hostess and made Twinkies, you don't also make trucks to deliver the Twinkies to grocery stores. You hire a company to do that. This time around, since you now have all kinds of cool friends, like people at the uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory and NASA, that certainly enriches your research, didn't it? Not at all. Well, all those people would happily help me out, I have no doubt. Um, it's still just faster to look stuff up on Google. But like I said, the space industry is so well documented online. I mean, if I, I could write an email to someone at NASA and they'd get back to me probably that same day. Or I could spend like three seconds Googling it and get the same information that I want. You know, I know that you, there were people in that business who, who said, how did you know some of that stuff? Only inside people should know that stuff. And I guess that explains it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I, 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 well, one thing that surprised a lot of the NASA people was how, how much I got the personalities of the NASA characters spot on. In fact, a lot of them thought that, that 
oh, this guy is clearly based on that real-world NASA guy. And I'm like, no, I've never heard of that guy. I just... I used to work for a national lab. It's called Sandia National Lab, um, which is in Livermore. And that's a federal uh, government research facility, scientific research facility. So I just kind of mapped the attitudes and culture of that onto NASA and assumed it would be the same. Turns out they are. <laughs> right. I know that you have such reverence for really these astronauts who are really just supermen. There's one in particular that kind of pops up, and that is John Young, who is just this amazing guy, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, well, he's still with us, but he's, he's very ill. But uh, yes, he's my favorite astronaut. When people ask me who my favorite astronaut is, and my favorite anecdote about him is that when he was launching in Apollo 15, his heart rate didn't go above 70, because oh. they monitor your bio readings and stuff. And his heart rate was like, yeah, whatever, I'm on a rocket, I'm lifting off. Yeah. I mean, our heart rates don't, just walking upstairs doesn't it go oh, above yeah. that. <laughs> oh man, that's amazing. I can't wait to see Artemis, I know that the wheels are in you motion. Know, you can read it. I, <laughs> let's not get silly. <laughs> I have read uh, excerpts and I know that those are available for people right now before they even buy the book. Well, I mean, you can buy the book right now, it's available now. J- or you can listen to the lovely audiobook presented by Rosario Delphi. That's very tempting, too. Such an honor talking to you, finally, Andy. Yeah, finally, yes. Again, very sorry about all the mix-ups on that. <laughs> it really has been. I, I'm a big fan of yours, and I wish you the best of luck on this. What is next? Is this going to be a serial unto itself? Will there, will there be a, a follow-up? I would like it to be, although not, not a direct serial. I'd like it to be more... Um, like a, a common setting that multiple different stories with different protagonists take place in. So someone who's the main character of this book might be a minor character in this other book and so on. I love, I, as a reader, I love that. I love it when a writer does that because then the setting just becomes really, really solid and real to me. So nice to talk to you, Andy. I appreciate it. Nice to talk to you as well. Thank you. All right, buddy. Bye-bye. You know, The Martian was so compelling because of Weir's fascination with the rigors of life in space and his miraculous devotion to scientific accuracy, which lets real-world facts drive the plot. He has a talent for setting up nerve-wracking threats requiring inventive solutions. I can't wait to dive into his new book, Artemis, now available. Well, that is the end of this edition of The Fake Show. I'm Jim Tofty, and I will see you back here next time. Take The Fake Show on the road by listening on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes.